0: And welcome to the second episode in this last season of the year, where we're going to focus on three areas of Christian practice. And I've summarized those in the last episode. And uh, I'm going to take each one of the next three to do a little bit deeper dive, although, because this is just one short, you know, uh, little conversation I'm having about each of these, these are going to be in themselves summaries. And as I've been thinking about how much there is to talk about in these areas of practice, I think that I will probably just spend all of next year rotating through them. So today is a little bit of a summary of what we call in the Christian literature, both ancient and modern, contemplative practice. Um, This series, I'm hoping, will be for a thoughtful and prayerful evaluation and planning for anybody listening. So you can take these ideas, sit down, think about what your practice is currently or what you hope it would be and thoughtfully, prayerfully, and hopefully with some conversation, which I love to have, or maybe you know someone that you could bring into this uh, process with you. You can think about where you want to go, what areas of your practice um, are ready to be developed, what areas you feel inspired and led to explore and experiment and try new things, which is certainly one of the things I hope that anybody listening to this takes away um, the freedom to explore. So, when we get into that conversation next year, because this is, we're, we're entering into December this week. Um, But for me, uh, this current moment, what is next year, which will be 2023, um, I also want to involve this idea of developing what what you might call a plan of life. Um, But let's just stick with these three areas of practice as sort of an introduction, maybe, or a reminder or an inspiration for where you want to go in your future. There are a few reasons I want to start with the ideas uh, in contemplative practice. So a couple of them here. Contemplative practice has a certain priority in the spiritual life, not because it's more important than the other spheres of spiritual practice, but because there is a progression in the spiritual life which begins with our being and then flows out into our doing. Jesus communicated this idea by saying that it's from the overflow of the heart, that's our being, our depths, that the mouth speaks, that's our doing. So the inner life makes itself known in our our outer or active life. And the outer life is then the natural expression or fulfillment of the inner life. So if what is on the inside is rotten, what comes out will be rotten, even if it might look good at first. And this, of course, was Jesus' accusation of the pharisaical practice of Judaism. He called them whitewashed tombs. In other words, they looked clean on the outside, but inside they said that they were full of all sorts of dead things. So if we don't want to follow that trajectory, what we need to do is not start with the outside, but start with the inside, prioritizing first what is going on in our being, and make that our focus, Now, maintaining this focus is difficult because it goes against the grain of our culture. And, of course, the way that culture influences the way we think about and practice religion. It requires following the psalmist's advice, who said to guard your hearts because they are the well or the spring that feeds the rest of our life. So this is the focus of contemplative practice, the cultivation of what you might call a healthy heart, a healthy inner life, which we'll talk about uh, more about the heart later. The other reason I wanted to start with contemplative practice is that um, in the evangelical world by which I and many people in my community have been strongly shaped, the concept of spending time alone with God has been, um, honestly, the best image for this is um, castrated, <laughs> It's like the very thing that was meant to be a source of life and newness and regeneration and growth. Um, For many people, that has become the exact opposite. So what I mean is simple and essential activities like engaging in the scriptures or uh, intentional times set aside for prayer. Those kinds of things can carry such emotional and spiritual baggage that many people—maybe many of us listening right now—cannot imagine doing them in a meaningful way at this point in your life. So my hope is to provide sort of a reframing for what we're doing and why, which is actually, honestly, a very old frame for understanding why we do all sorts of contemplative practices like the two that I just mentioned. So just a very quick review. What is contemplative practice? Contemplative practice is, and this is my summary and trying to describe something that really is very personal to each person. Um, And so, if you read different people and how they talk about it, they'll use oftentimes different words. So, these are my words. Contemplative practice is where we become still, where we stop, we cease our activities so that we can learn through experience in those moments of stillness. That God is God. And I don't mean learn in an intellectual way, but something much deeper to our core, what the Bible calls our heart. In that stillness, we can consciously choose to restrict our thoughts and our attention from all the things that normally demand our thoughts and attention. And in those moments, we can practice a kind of purification. And this is the purification of our heart or our will. In other words, of who we are and of what we truly are going to set our attention and intention on, our desire. So we use this time to sort of purge or let go of all of our clutchings and our cravings, all things that you could call lesser desires, And in these moments, we lean into the fact that our one true need and truly deepest desire is God alone. We're committing ourselves in these times to the remembrance that we belong completely to God. Everything we have, everything we are, it has all been given to us. Our past, our present, and our future are fully encompassed by the insistent and faithful presence of God's love. This is our time to focus not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen, on the eternal things. Our true situation as spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in God. Now, the more more time I spend in this kind of contemplative practice, the more I see the extreme contrast between the reality that I can know and experience to be true in that stillness and all of the non-reality that I can so easily end up living in during the busier and more active and stressful parts of my day. It's in those quiet moments that I can gain this perspective and take on just a, a kind of a posture of soul, a posture of being that is so different than when I am just being driven by the demands of the day. This might be one reason why so many of the great Teachers of contemplative spirituality have encouraged their students to at least begin and end every day with some kind of contemplative practice that brings this reality to the forefront of our minds, and often to make a point of pausing throughout the day to recollect their hearts and their minds into this sort of sharp and focused awareness. So, despite my vague words and descriptions here, I would say that contemplative practice is simply trying to address the issue that we all face, which is that God and God's reality are currently in some way hidden, meaning that they are not readily and easily visible to us. So we have to learn how to see God and how to see the reality of God with a different kind of sight, now, if we could simply, you know, get up and begin our day and deal with the world as it comes to us until it's time to go to bed and hopefully get a few breaks through the day and maybe some time to relax in the evening, if, if that was all we did, most of us would simply never see the reality that is hidden in all of that, despite the fact that it's, it's already there, it's always there. We're in the unfortunate situation of being estranged from that reality because we have all been shaped by a world that does not acknowledge its existence. So, if I'm hoping to regularly and consistently experience the things of what Jesus called the kingdom of God, God's reality, like hope and love and joy and peace, which are the life of faith, I'm going to need a way to shift what I see when I look at the world around me or myself. The work of changing what I see, of changing what to me seems most real, requires more than a weekly sermon or reading a book or even engaging in acts of loving service or cultivating healthy community. It requires revelation. Revelation might sound like a super-spiritual word, but it simply means something was hidden, and now that something, which was previously undetectable and unknowable to me, it was in the dark, is now brought out into the light of my vision. It is revealed to me. My spiritual eyes are opened to something new. Now, it was always there. I just couldn't see it, and therefore, I couldn't live as if it were real. So revelation applies to all aspects of God's reality. God is revealing God's self to me. God is revealing my true self to me. And God is revealing God's presence in all things to me. God is revealing hope where I couldn't see it, joy where I couldn't sense it, love where I didn't know it, peace where I saw only chaos, and on and on and on. But there is another thing that's happening in contemplative practice, which is deeper still. Um, everything that I have described so far is something I can be aware of and can in some sense quantify. I become consciously aware, let's say, of a new thing, uh, something that's revealed to me, a new thought, maybe a new insight. But the final goal of contemplative practice, the, the end result that I think God is really after and that we can actually work with, with God toward, is the healing of the separation that exists between me and God, even if it only exists in my mind. In truth, I mean, you and I only exist because we are in God, and because God is currently loving us into existence. The common experience passed down by those who have committed to this contemplative practice is that God is slowly, bit by bit, piece by piece, removing and erasing whatever it is in me that believes that I am somehow separated from God. Now, some of that might be my own pride. Maybe that's the shame that makes me want to hide. But the goal is truly the complete reunification of our souls with the soul of God. From whom we came and to whom we will return. This, like I said, it's slow, it's bit by bit. And as God reveals this reality to me, partly by showing me what it is in me that has to be removed or healed or maybe outright just killed, put to death in order for this to happen, like I said, it could be my arrogance in thinking maybe I don't need God. Or that every good thing, potentially, that I have or do isn't ultimately from God. Or it could be, like I said, the shame. The shame of my faults and failures that causes me to sort of keep God at an arm's length, keep my distance. There are, of course, many facets and expressions of our false sense of independence and separateness from God. But it all falls under the category of egocentrism. In other words, making myself my needs, my wants, my desires, the center of things. Through various tools of contemplative practice, we find ways of placing God at the center, and then we locate our own selves, our own egos, within God, as we learn to see that this actually is the way that things really are. This is reality. God is the center of all things. And we stop trying to live in our own little fabricated worlds of self-centeredness. The story and narrative of our lives is reframed from the myopic or the nearsighted version, which is all about me, to a much larger vision in which I am somehow so small, yet, at the same time, I'm indispensable to God. So this reframing or retelling of the story of me, of who I am, what I'm doing, where I've come from, and where I'm going, this is not something that can happen just on the go. Changing our inner narrative requires consistent inputs that are contrasting the inputs that we get all day long, either from our surrounding culture or the voice that we've developed in our own heads that is not God. So this process is a meditative process of letting go of those old narratives, the old programs running in our brains um, that we've been embracing. And then we get to start embracing and practicing new ones. We do this by creating that space, like I was saying, and in that space of stillness we feel no urgency, no pressure, no judgment. If we do start to feel urgency or pressure or some kind of judgment, we get to let those things go. Because contemplative practice, at its best, gives us the space we need to let down all the defenses that are protecting that false self we've built up and placed at the center of everything. And when practiced well, we find that by letting go of what we thought we needed to take care of ourselves, we can actually begin experiencing God taking care of us, which is often described using the words like love, joy, hope, and peace. These are the initial fruit of contemplative practice. They put, we're putting our soul at rest in God, so that we can begin then to act in the world from that place of rest, rather than from a place of fear, anxiety, or control. So what I'd like to do for the rest of this episode is give a brief overview of what you might call four stages or steps of contemplative practice. And they were first outlined a long time ago by a monk named Guigo II. Now that was almost a thousand years ago. But his book, which he called A Ladder for Monks, because he compares these four steps or stages to rungs on a ladder ascending to union with God, um, he says in this book, which was sort of the manual for monks and people practicing contemplative spirituality for uh, centuries, he says we can move up and down this ladder and practice any of these four stages even within one sitting, but we can also see these different stages as sort of the season of life we're in. So rather than be like really rigid and formal with this, we should see these as movements, Um, see these as ways of, of engaging with and resting in God through contemplative practice. Now the whole book is less than 20 pages, so if you get it, I would encourage you to get it and read it, and most books will come with a bunch of introduction about Guigo and the book itself, and the translation and all that stuff. But I actually am going to begin by reading just uh, a a little chunk out of the beginning from the prologue. And then I'm going to give sort of my summary of how he describes each of these four stages with a little bit of input from how I experienced them. Okay, this is from the prologue. He says, one day when I was busy working with my hands, I began to think about our spiritual work, and all at once four stages in spiritual exercise came to my mind. Reading, meditation, prayer, and contemplation. These make up a ladder for monks by which they are lifted up from earth to heaven. It has few rungs, yet its length is immense and wonderful. For its lower end rests upon the earth, but its top pierces the clouds and touches heavenly secrets. Just as its rungs or degrees have different names and numbers, they differ also in order and quality. And if anyone inquires carefully into their properties and functions what each one does in relation to us, the differences between them and their order of importance, he will consider whatever trouble and care he may spend on this little and easy in comparison with the help and consolation which he gains. Reading is the careful study of scriptures concentrating all one's powers on it. Meditation is the busy application of the mind, to seek with the help of one's own reason for knowledge of hidden truth. Prayer is the heart's devoted turning to God, to drive away evil and obtain what is good. Contemplation is when the mind is in some sort lifted up to God and held above itself so that it tastes the joys of everlasting sweetness. Now that we've described the four stages, we must see what their functions are in relation to us. Reading seeks for the sweetness of a blessed life. Meditation perceives it. Prayer asks for it. Contemplation tastes it. Reading, as it were, puts whole food into the mouth. Meditation chews it and breaks it up. Prayer extracts its flavor. Contemplation is the sweetness itself which gladdens and refreshes. Reading works on the outside. Meditation on the pith. Prayer asks for what we long for. Contemplation gives us delight in the sweetness which we have found. So, I'd like to give my summary of each of these stages, um, drawing a little bit on some of Wigo's writing and talk about these four movements of contemplative practice, okay? First one is in Latin, often referred to as lectio, um, which is Latin for reading. The first stage is giving our minds something to focus on, some kind of new input, either through reading or listening. Guigo, actually I should say, there's other forms of input. There's uh, Visio, which is looking, uh, watching things. But basically, this first stage is all about taking some good thing and bringing it into ourselves, like putting food in your mouth. Guigo specifically mentions scripture, obviously as a source material, but to be honest, you can do this with Like, for example, the writings of other people who are on this path, like Guigo himself. We're kind of doing a Lectio on Guigo right now as I was reading that and you were listening. So the content is simply a vehicle through which something new is revealed to us. It's probably helpful to mention that some content tends to be more helpful than others. Um, But the most important factor is the attitude we are bringing to this table. If we come to this time and we're prepared to listen, we're gathering our attention and our focus and listening with the intent to see or hear something new. It really makes all the difference. That's why, for one thing, many teachers who teach uh, these practices suggest methods of briefly preparing yourself essentially help you get into the right attitude or posture. And then once there you can spend as little as just a few minutes reading something or listening or or looking at something and find in those things that something is revealing itself to you something you're seeing something that has inherent beauty and goodness or truth in it even if you don't know exactly what it is at first it's more of of a curiosity or an intrigue something you're feeling lured to 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 something, to not skim over it, to not move on, but to sit with it. Something it's often for me, I feel like I don't even know what I'm looking for and I can't even quite put my finger on it, but I'm definitely provoked in some meaningful way. And that experience, that little provocation, (laughs) It can be very fleeting. It, it can be easy just that to get in sort of like a, if I'm going to check this box, if I'm going to read these words today, or my, here's my scriptures for my daily reading, or whatever, it's easy to just miss that experience, not pay attention to it, not engage it, and get to the end and completely miss or possibly forget what happened in that, in that little moment. So Guigo is pretty clear here. This requires a lot of humility when we approach things that we're listening to. You can't really get that kind of curiosity or get a glimpse of that if you're coming without a sense of humility. It takes a lack of an agenda. Like I said, it's really hard to do this when we're just focused on getting through the thing or checking the box. And I know that for some of us more than for others, that's a that's a temptation. But it also requires, I think, a genuine curiosity but not just the curiosity that's sort of, um, how would I say this? Uh, <laughs> well, I'll say it's a curiosity that's willing to put in the effort. You know how when you're really interested in something, you're really kind of willing to go that extra length to, to search something out, to explore, to ask questions, to engage with an open heart? See, this is not a passive thing where we're just kind of passively reading and waiting for something to happen to us. We are very actively focusing our whole attention on whatever it is. So that's the first movement. And, you know, you can spend a long time in that movement. You can spend whole seasons in that movement. Or you can just spend a few minutes and something strikes you as worth considering, as worth meditating on. That was a good little transition right there. Second movement. In Latin, it would be meditatio. In English, we just call it meditation. So when something is revealed or discovered, revelation happens, and it seems worth exploring and looking into, we feel drawn to sit with that. Guigo says, now it's time to move to the next phase. And again, he calls it meditation. Now, we have to be careful with words here because in some traditions, meditation is a practice of actually emptying your mind of thoughts but in this tradition, in the Christian West tradition, meditation actually means engaging your mind. He calls it like chewing on it. So we're exploring, we're examining every little detail, and we're paying very close attention. We're thinking. And Guigo says that this, if reading is like putting the food in the mouth, then meditation, we're going to chew, and we're going to chew a lot, because it's, it's the use of our rationality and our reason That allows us to begin this process of discursive meditation. So, if we think of reading as a form of seeking new input, meditation is now perceiving what it is that we are receiving. It's really becoming aware of it, it's taking it to a deeper and fuller understanding of whatever it is that we have, we think we may have sought or found. Now, me personally, this is a great time to write down my thoughts as I explore and examine this new thing that's being revealed to me. And it it often helps me to sort of engage in a conversational approach about this topic, almost as if God has shown me something and kind of like asking me, you know, what what do you think? What thoughts or questions do I have about it? And I try to be not judgmental and not critical at all. It's just I'm just exploring this, this new thing. I'm asking questions. I don't have to have answers. I don't, I don't have an agenda here. I'm just sitting with it. And as we interact personally and sort of in this vulnerable state, we can assume that whatever is being revealed to us is, is meant to help us. So whatever is being shown to me, I can trust. This is something good. This is worth sitting with. And more than that, it's probably essential to where I am right now. So, it's bringing me to some new place of health or wholeness or healing. And then through entering into it and engaging with it, it stirs up something inside of me. And we can see and recognize in that stirring up a a deep desire that maybe was there in the depths of our heart, but we didn't recognize it. And this is where I think the purification, the dealing with our hearts, really starts to happen in this process. Because in the process of living life, it's very easy to just live on the surface and to be distracted by lesser desires and things that are just easily um, just sort of, oh, what's the word? Met, you know, medicate ourselves. So what happens, though, is if I sit with something that is good and beautiful and I begin to engage with it in this way, it stirs up some deeper things in me. And that, that's vulnerable, and it can honestly be scary. Because we guard ourselves against that kind of desire and hope. Because when it goes unfulfilled, it doesn't feel good. And so in that stirring up, in in that recognition that there is something down there deeply, deeply embedded in us, part of who we are, that is what we really, really want, that actually begins to usher us into something new and different. And we only find that if we sit with that meditation for a bit, sometimes for a season. What is is next? Well, Guigo says next comes prayer. So once that healthy desire is awake, prayer brings us face to face with our dependence on God for that thing. So Guigo notes that people, anybody, he says the good and the bad alike, Anybody can read and anybody can meditate. He even says that, quote, pagan philosophers by the use of their reason discovered the highest and truest good. But he's quick to note that the problem is that we do not have the power to attain what it is that we seek. Those deepest desires that we have are not honestly within our power to attain. We would rather live in a world where we can um, sense some lesser desire because we have the power to make those happen. But just because I see something new, some new possibility, or I'm inspired to be, you know, this new, healthier version of myself, doesn't mean that I'm done or that I can make it happen. And Guigo's blunt way of saying this is, quote, Meditation, sorry, prayer without meditation is lukewarm. But meditation without prayer is unfruitful. Let me say that again. Prayer without meditation is lukewarm. Why? Because we're praying about things that we don't honestly often really care that much about. We haven't taken the time to let our deeper desires come alive and come awake. But if we meditate and we recognize those desires, but then we don't pray, that is unfruitful because just because we, we see them or we recognize them doesn't mean anything's going to happen. The, tr- the Christian tradition is very clear about this. Our salvation, which is our experience of God delivering us or helping us, it is a gift of grace. In other words, this is God's unearned gift to us, and it comes through faith, through our trust or confidence in God. So my prayers are an act of faith in God's grace to help me do what I cannot do on my own. And meditation kindles that flame of desire, and prayer then takes that desire and expresses it personally and passionately to God. Prayer says, God, this is what I deeply want. It's, it's a brave act, a courageous act, but also a humble act. And it's a very focused exercise of my will as it makes a declaration of intent and desire for what it truly is truly wants, and begins to separate those true desires from all lesser desires. So that's one way to think about this phase of prayer. And then finally, Quigo mentions mentions what he calls contemplation. So once our deep desires have been expressed, and that passion has come up, and we've entrusted them to God, there's really only one thing left to do at that point. There's only one thing we can do, and it is to return to that stillness. Contemplation is described, the, the, this movement of contemplation, and it's a little confusing because we talk about all the contemplative practices or this whole thing is a contemplative practice, but now we're talking about contemplation as a specific movement within these practices. It's described by many different authors, and, and many of them will talk about it as a gift that God gives, not something that we can create, and only Sometimes. Like, it's not the kind of thing that happens all the time. The first three stages are truly our acts of devotional sincerity. So it's my commitment, my devotion, as sincerely as I can do it, to God. These are things that I can faithfully do, and that will help me, help all of us on our journey. I can read. I can listen, right? I can meditate, right? I can pray. But contemplation is a mysterious Experience of God giving us a glimpse of what we're truly seeking. We may have like a very specific focus, you know, for our reading, for our meditation, for our prayer, but we know that the true end of all of this, the goal and, and the destination of our lives is reunion with God. And in contemplation, we somehow get to sometimes experience that in some way. Now, for me, The importance of including this final step of contemplative practice is that it brings me face to face with the fact that I am completely dependent on God for any good to happen. It is so easy, you know, after having one of those light bulb moments and having now a bunch of new thoughts and new passions surface to try to move quickly into the business of the day like, wow, I have this new thought or this new passion or this new goal or whatever and then to leave my awareness of God as I then try to get things done. Um, But those moments, those minutes of silence and stillness, and this, this movement of resting and being still and open, this is where I then let go, and I surrender, and I wait, and I do nothing. And honestly, these are the moments where I am challenged, and I think probably adjusted, most deeply, and probably in ways that I don't even know. Now, maybe nothing happens that I can put my finger on, but I have chosen to remember that I am ultimately, despite all my best efforts here, completely dependent on God. And yet God has completely accepted me as I am in this place. And this is true regardless of whether I received any special revelation or or whether I'm not a, I'm able to accomplish anything in this time of contemplative practice. So this is my introduction to contemplative practice, these four movements. I'd encourage you, if you want some more insight, to look to Guigo, but there's lots of people who talk about this. Um, centering prayer, especially, is one of those gifts and tools of helping us sort of transition from uh, prayer into this contemplative movement. And I hope it was helpful But what I really hope is that you would take time to consider your own life and your practice. Um, I'm hoping that this talk gives you a little bit of inspiration and maybe some tools to think about what uh, shape your contemplative practice will take in this coming year. Now, there are, of course, lots of topics we could discuss and tools that we can use. And like I said, next year, I really want to explore a lot of those. But for now, thank you for listening, and I will be back soon to talk about The next area of practice, which is the active life.